why does it feel like city services are declining, right? I mean, we've got more revenue capacity, and I think that's kind of the issue is we look at what we are choosing to invest public money in, and it does not feel like we're investing public money in making this a, a truly livable city. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to do something. Welcome to PBN. I am your host, Braden Gall, and we have a slightly different type of episode today. Jamie and I had a chance to sit down with mayoral candidate Freddie O'Connell for over an hour. We covered a lot of topics, but we also had time to go deeper into those more complex issues like his plans around affordability, both in housing and in transit, why he feels like he's the most qualified candidate to rebuild trust in Nashville. That would be trust with Nashville voters, but also trust within the council and between Metro and the state, all of which are tricky relationships the next mayor will have to manage and navigate. Those relationships have to be working for our city to work. We also covered education, safety, parks, and yes, even pickleball. Truly, it's the best possible way to get to know a candidate and to fully understand who they are, what they stand for, and what they plan to do should they win. You will learn everything you need to know about Freddie O'Connell, the candidate, today on the show, and we're very proud to bring that to you. Uh, We're working on getting these types of interviews with as many candidates as possible in this long-form sit-down format. Matt Wilcher will be next up on the pod, so stay tuned for that. As always, please rate and review the show. It means a lot to us and helps people find us. Also, feel free to tell somebody about us. We really appreciate it. Uh, Before you hear from Freddie, I do have some campaign finance information for you all. The second quarter period ended on June 30th, and all campaigns have made their fundraising public at time of taping. As you all know, Matt Wilcher led quarter two with a little over $500,000 raised. Jeff Yarborough was second at $350,000. Heidi Campbell was third at $326,000, with O'Connell coming in fourth at a robust $293,000. Alice Rowley raised $171,000. Sharon Hurt and Jim Gingrich were just over $100,000 each. And Vivian Wilhoyt raised just $70K. First and foremost, that's almost $2 million spent on eight candidates in one quarter of a mayoral race. A quick and not-so-subtle reminder that our political system is an incredibly efficient use of money and time. But I digress. Yarborough and Wiltshire have the most cash on hand heading into the final weeks of the race, with O'Connell sitting safely in third. All three of those candidates have more than $400,000 sitting in their campaign funds, well ahead of everyone else heading down the stretch. No other candidate has more than $200,000 left on hand, as Jim Gingrich has all but spent all of his $2 million in personal donation. To what end? I am unsure, but those TV ads were pretty slick. He clearly leads the way in total spending for the campaign, while Wiltshire has $1.4 million in spending is a distant second. Interestingly enough, and deploying a totally different strategy to varying degrees of success and some by choice, Rowley, Campbell, O'Connell, and Yarborough have all spent between $165,000 and $200,000 on their campaign so far, which of course is a far cry from what the top spenders have done, one9 and one4 for Gingrich and Wilshire. Hurt has spent just over $100,000 and Vivian Wilhoyt just over $32,000. 
Obviously, money isn't the only thing that matters in an election, but it's a big factor. Reach and frequency is the key, hitting what you've identified to be your key demographics as efficiently as possible. This race is still largely a toss-up, but with Matt Wilcher's fundraising and Freddie O'Connell's ground game combined with plenty of remaining resources, both have cemented themselves as primary contenders. Heidi Campbell has name ID and is clearly deploying a ground game strategy, while Jeff Yarbrough has stockpiled resources to make a big final push this month. For both, getting into the race late was a huge hurdle to overcome, but both seem to be contenders for the runoff as well. And my guess is that Sharon Hurt is going to be a factor. So maybe the real question is, has a top five separated itself? This has long been viewed as an eight-candidate mess, but maybe we are starting to see a top tier. Only time will tell, but one thing is for sure, it's going to be extremely interesting to track, and we here at PBN aim to give you as much quality information about these candidates as possible so you can better get to know them on a deeper level and so that you can make an informed decision on August Third. As a reminder, early voting begins July 14th on Friday and runs through Saturday, July 29th, and the locations are linked in the show notes. All right, with all of that out of the way, here was our conversation with candidate Freddie O'Connell. Freddie, good to have you in studio with us. How are you? Good, sir. Good to have you. Doing doing great. It's, uh, it's amazing uh, to be in this particular studio. <laughs> um, so let's start with a very broad general question here. I've talked to a lot of different voters from different persuasions, different demographics, different parties. And there seems to be something you have tapped into with a lot of those different types of voters. Can you explain in your mind why that is with our current landscape in the city of Nashville? You know, um, I'll say when we set out to do this over a year ago, the overall project of running, I, I actually started with a premise that we would be able to bring the most interesting coalition of voters to the polls. And that was true if we were challenging an incumbent mayor. That was true if we were up against an open field. Now, there are obviously, I think there's a candidate mix that maybe could have emerged that would have uh, injured that hypothesis. But at this point, it's consistent with where we were in part because uh, I mean, we had a we had a team potluck last night to kind of get ready for the home stretch of the campaign, and our team is it's kind of like we've got a senior leadership team that's been there for the whole year, and then we have uh, everybody we've brought on to make the effort go this year, and that group is young. It represents the diversity of Nashville from, you know, our Kurdish community to our Latino community to our black community to our LGBT community, a lot of high school and college students. And I think because I have been for 15 years, I think I've been in spaces really for 20 years, been in spaces that people know why they're fighting for something. People know why they're advocating for something people understand the the cultural value of Nashville that is really more uh, from a grassroots perspective. And I think also across the partisan spectrum, there is something to be said for somebody who believes in good government and is is trying fundamentally to, to bring people together to solve problems. I, I know your, your latest ad, the billionaires and bachelorettes, I, I think that's probably trying to to clarify that message to people. Yeah. Um, if I say on our last episode, we, we talked about the city being headed in the you know wrong direction, right direction, right? right? D- define 
the right direction? So to me, the right direction means we are back to a principle of investing in ourselves. We spent more than a decade kind of waving our hands and saying to the nation and the rest of the world, hey, wait, look at us. We're Nashville. We're here. Well, we're on the map now. And I think the wrong track for people feels like, wait a second. I had a neighbor of mine say this. Uh, We had a, a little event in my own neighborhood a few months ago, and she said, we've seen all this growth. Like she can see it from her front porch. Why does it feel like city services are declining? Right. I mean, we've got more revenue capacity. And I think that's kind of the issue is we we look at what we are choosing to invest public money in. And it does not feel like we're investing public money in making this a, a truly livable city. And I think that's that's kind of what the ad is clarifying. And you can see in the ad, too, it's the the whole <laughs> the I actually I wasn't even thinking about this in many ways until after the fact. But it's the the premise of the ad has a very team driven approach. And I think that's where we've also seen a lot of, um, you know, top-down decision-making happened that has not involved a lot of people. And I think uh, in our best public processes, we really do authentically go out there and try to understand community concerns and, and have good and sometimes difficult conversations. If city services are down, as you say, what did the 34% property tax increase in the midst of a pandemic do to increase those services? Jamie, that's that's perhaps the biggest head scratcher, and it's why if you look at my track record on trying to get both, right, because you know this from having been in it yourself, right? There is a, a dynamic that exists between where the public mood is and what is necessary, and I will say this. Bob Mendez was right about the math from the first time we went through this. We, we hit a big problem when we went through a sequence of events back uh, 2017, 2018. We had a, you know, I was home with our younger daughter having just been born during the state of Metro watching it and hearing that there was going to be a declaration that there would not be a property tax rate increase that year, right? And so that was uh, on that assessment year. And that was going to be uh, connected to moving what was Nashville MTA and is now WeGo Public Transit completely off of the operating budget because we were going to have dedicated funding for transit. It relied on disposing of our district energy system, which did not happen, and that would have been uh, both debt off the books and an in-place cash infusion in real time. Uh, It involved uh, parking privatization arrangement that would have been a whole bunch of cash up front and $8 million guaranteed recurring. None of those things happened. So all we got was the reduction in revenue uh, from the lack of property tax adjustment. Cost of government was going to go up inflationary just like everything else, and we did not adjust. And all of those additional and alternative revenue sources fell off the table. So we started digging a hole, and that's when we were selling property to make uh, make budget. And I knew that the time right after the mayor had you know that administration had collapsed and we watched we're talking about the bradley administration yeah. well so the barry administration collapsed the bradley administration steps in that was going to be a very tough year to go out to the public and say there has just been this massive breach of trust therefore we should raise property taxes that would have been untenable despite the math i think if we had held together for a year done it the next year 
you would have still carried into this term with an extra year revenue, a rate increase that did not feel dramatic, and we would have weathered COVID. Instead, we did the two worst things possible, right? We had the lack of tax adjustment, no revenue, dig us a hole, and then we waited too long and you can go back and look at my substitute budgets and the amendments I put on there. I, I look for every possible mechanism to bridge the gap across COVID till we got back to economic certainty. In that period of economic certainty, we did the largest property tax rate adjustment in Metro history. And it was, in my judgment, still historically the wrong time to do it. And I'm still looking for <laughs> the signs that it is producing. I mean, I'll say, I think we have the capacity, but I don't think we have the executive coordination on a lot of the services that people expect to see. I mean, I don't expect you to say it, but I'll say it for you <laughs> and anyone else. The, the next mayor, the next council is going to have to raise property taxes. I think that's a reality. So I, I'm going to crunch the numbers on it. I mean, what I will say, <clears throat> you can go back and look at the, Last two fiscal years, too, I was very anxious about using that property tax rate increase uh, to increase the number of full-time employees so dramatically. We have added more than 1,000 full-time employees to Metro over the past two fiscal years, and past three, really, I guess, with this coming incoming budget. But even before FY24, we were adding almost 1,000 employees just in those two fiscal years, and that says... Yeah, maybe Metro wasn't keeping pace with growth, but I, I went through every department and, you know, looked at every line item and it just isn't clear to me that the, you know, if you look at the city as a series of maps and spreadsheets, you may be able to say, okay, yes, these positions, but I feel like I wanted to know, uh, right. I mean, the greatest example of all is we did the, we did the property tax rate increase, you know, Christmas later, we can't pick up recycling. I mean, that that's fundamentally garbage. garbage. Right. Well, yeah. So it's, it, 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 that says, and no offense to the lawyers in the room, but when your answer to what people's expectations are is we're going to let lawyers figure it out, it's just, it's not good enough. And so we, we can do better, but I think this is almost, uh, I mean, coming back to your point about the, why are people like, what is this coalition about? And how are people like, how do you get the city back on the right track? You sometimes it is roll up your sleeves and show from the mayor's office that you care. I mean, this is, it is, it is all three of leadership, governing and management. And I think that's what has also happened to me over the past few years is going through 2020 Nashville's greatest year of crisis in my lifetime, where you had a tornado, then you immediately get a backdrop of a global pandemic. Then you get windstorms like what we've had here recently, except this time it knocks 100,000 people out of power. Then you get City Hall getting set on fire during a period of civil unrest, and you end the year with a Christmas Day bombing. I mean, it was unusual to have to develop a portfolio of crisis management skills, but that is what happened because almost all of those events occurred with an epicenter in the district that I represent. You you speak about the erosion of trust, circa Megan Berry, David Briley, based on connections in your campaign. What are you hearing from voters of where we are now in that horizon? I think people are waiting to see what happens. I think that's why right track wrong track is still five years later, such a a tough 
premise uh, for voters. And, you know, I, I guess I'll say it this way. I, I am surprised in some ways by the decisions about how we conduct our citywide conversation. So we, we did the biggest deal in the history of the city and you will not see evidence of it in either state of Metro that bookended it. Uh, there was no advisory about, hey, we're going to talk, have this important conversation about the Titans deal. There was also no real celebration of the things that we did, and that's very unusual to me. I think from a, a trust standpoint, I want, the, I want the city invested in the things that we're doing. I mean, this was going back to the, the transit referendum. By the end of it, People were saying, well, why weren't you more involved in the conversation because you're telling us things that nobody else is talking about? And I said, well, I wasn't invited to be in that conversation, but when I'm invited into these spaces, I'm going to <laughs> tell you what I think. Uh, I mean, I think that's ultimately that's one of the fundamental jobs of the mayor is to invite the public into the conversation about what's happening in the city. And I hope that if we are successful, we get to do that in a way that builds trust and confidence in what Metro is doing. And now I will say, you know, we were talking just a little bit about uh, social media on the way in. I do think having a more uh, fractured media landscape makes it harder, not just in Nashville, but in places across the state of Tennessee, across the country, to be able to pull people together as effectively because you do wind up with silos i mean nashville um, as you all know has become kind of a, a hub of particularly conservative media and there will always be uh pressure that is designed to disrupt good governance and that's we just have to be aware of that on the front end but i think you can have a high quality conversation with the city as the mayor it's still the biggest bully pulpit in the city we can get to how we return how do we get centrist government and centrist governing? We can get to that in a second. But you mentioned the Titans deal, and that leads to tough conversations. You know, you win the mayor's office. You are in charge of the city. You did not vote for the deal. Um, but as someone personally who probably would hold his nose, let's say, and vote for it, hypothetically, and just that so you kind of have a frame of reference of where I'm coming from. Sure. I think you've spoken about this before. How how do you make it work? Like, sure, I would love to see affordable housing. I'd love to see a transit hub there. I'd love to see green space. I'd love to see it work for the people of Nashville. You didn't vote for it. East Bank Development's coming as well. How do you, as someone who was against it, then get into the office and it's yours whether you like it or not? Yeah. How do you then actually go about solving those problems uh, you know the, the issues that you talk about in that development i mean this this is like anything that you wind up uh living with and i don't think the titans deal is unique in this regard our family just went out to the zoo yesterday they've got a parking garage that's under construction with 15 million dollars of our taxpayer money invested in it i disagree with that decision but when the garage is open i'm sure our family will use it um it's a lot of parking out there by the zoo by the way already it, it is that's why the other part of that was i fought for uh vision zero and transit funding so that the neighborhood just around the corner caldwell abbey hall which calls themselves the zoo neighborhood can actually have any hope of walking to the zoo from their neighborhood which they cannot safely do today uh, i think those are the kinds of investments in the way you build trust and i think Metro here will be the master developer for uh, 100 plus acres in the footprint of the stadium. That is exactly where we set the standards for the goal I hope we achieve, which is that people who are working in the stadium, a lot of whom will be hourly earners, 
uh, have the opportunity to afford to live nearby if that's where they want to choose to live. That, uh, you know, we get to shape whether the district around the stadium feels more like a, a cluster of urban neighborhoods that is like what the Titans said out loud a few years ago, which is a Wrigleyville model rather than a junior version of the entertainment district. That is something I'm fundamentally committed to. Similarly, the infrastructure choices we make right there are what are going to have uh, the outcome that we have with those infrastructure choices are going to be what determine whether people in East Nashville get pissed off on Titans game days because they feel like they can't get anywhere else in the city and I-24 remains a barrier to the access to the rest of the city or we get the infrastructure choices right that make East Nashville feel more connected to the East Bank and the East Bank more connected to downtown rather than diverting everything away from downtown. I think having the East Bank be thoroughly integrated into the urban core of Nashville is really important. That's why I think the Oracle Bridge from River North, um, whether we get any kind of new bridge for motorists out of this uh, at any point along the river, and there may be as many as two anticipated, uh, how we design the, the boulevard spine road concept, uh, how we get that transit node incorporated, all of those things that the mayor of Nashville's most consequential work from kind of an urban development and how that actually pays for the restoration of city services is all going to be the East Bank. There's no way to avoid it. The Titans are hoping to play by 2027. Well, guess what the term is? 2023 to 2027, right? So there will be a lot of investment. And then coming back to the trust, I think the hardest math problem that speaks to Jamie's point on where we are uh, with what revenues we have available and what we're going to need is it is going to be absolutely imperative that the next mayor demonstrate that the five to $700 million of capital investment we're going to need to make in the East Bank that is public money. I mean, that's that's one of the, the things that I tried to illuminate about the deal is that this is, for all the people that said this is just going to be, oh, it's hotel, motel, whatever. We're going to be on the hook, general obligation bonds. That's direct pressure on the general fund for a significant amount of uh, capital spending plan investment in the East Bank. Every single one of those dollars, we're going to have to demonstrate to the other 500 square miles of Nashville, we are also investing in you. And so that's going to be, I think, an imperative part of the mayor's role is we have to get the East Bank right from affordable housing, character and quality of neighborhood, transit and infrastructure. And also we have to show that we're not just so consumed by the East Bank that we can't invest in the rest of the city. And that's, that is where the, the, uh, pressure on trust is going to be. That leads us into a larger transit conversation, a larger affordability conversation, but we'll start with, with transit. If the goal, and I think people understand, at least if you talk to them this way, that it's a 30, 40, 50 year project that if we, if I want my kids to ride light rail around Nashville someday in some utopian dream that I have that like we have to take steps and you've talked about the bus routes and making that more efficient, making that more palatable for people that also involves housing density, right? You need yep. density to create use for those corridors. I understand your pitch as a voter. I understand what you're saying about the bus lanes and maximizing that and that being the first step. My question is how do we get from that step to the second step to the third step to the, like, what's the plan? Once we do the bus thing, I'm okay. on board with you. Then what do we do to get to the next step? So the the near-term thing, so I would say, yeah, you can imagine a 50-year a horizon where you get a, a dream transit vision. But to your point, 
you can do so much in the near term that we have just chosen not to do. And it is so frustrating for me, having been on council for eight years, to realize that uh, if you don't wind up with mayoral focus on priorities that really are necessary for a city to succeed, and I'd put transit in the top of the mix, right? I mean, there are a handful of things that are just ingredients in successful cities. Safety, top of that list. You can't do anything with the city feeling or being in any way meaningfully unsafe. And so you always have to do that. I think schools is up there, right? If if your school system is abjectly failing, then again, it's it's a problem for the future. We have some accountability issues we do need to resolve in schools. But if you look around the country uh, and districts that are affiliated with the Coalition of Great City Schools, we have had some steps forward, some steps back. As mayor, I expect to be accountable on that. But then you get into, if you can get those fundamentals right and then make sure that livability is the next thing on the list, and that means everything from wages, cost of living, affordable housing and transit, I see transit and housing as fundamentally connected. And I think one of the things I've been worried about during this entire conversation is we're going to get so focused on talking about affordable housing because people see it as easier because we've had some tough conversations about transit. Well, you can't decouple them. Uh, if you can help a household lower their cost of transportation by delivering meaningful mobility options, and that is true for, you know, last year was the deadliest year on record for pedestrians in Nashville. If we can deliver safer infrastructure anchored around transit, and I can drop the number of car trips or reduce the likelihood that my family has to pay for two cars instead of one, I mean, that's an $8,000 a year implicit tax we're putting on people. And we know that at any given moment, somewhere between 4 to 10% of Nashvillians don't have reliable access to cars. We know that you know, people under age 16 or above a certain age are also not going to be driving. We know we have a disability community that's not going to be driving. And we are doing a disservice to them on affordability the whole time. We go put on all of our desks not long after I took office, having come directly from the Nashville MTA Board of Directors, a three-year work plan that was directly about traditional, better bus service, building out a frequent transit network, putting community transit centers in places like Hillsboro, where there's one at the new Hillsboro High School, where there's one under construction out on Clarksville Pike. If we get this one on the East Bank, put one out at uh, Hickory Hollow, which we now own, uh, have another Sobro transit hub in downtown, you've now got a, a network of a half a dozen scenarios that mean not every route has to come up to Charlotte MLK to WeGo Central to go out to some other part of the city. You're also building the crosstown capacity to do it. That's there within our operating capacity. I mean, we grew in eight years from a $2 billion city to a more than $3 billion city by operating capacity. And our transit budget barely grew at all during that time. That is a choice. If we change our priorities so that we say up front, we are going to invest in this three-year work plan that we go did, which we should have done on route to the transit referendum in 2018, because it is the most visible, useful, popular, and cost-effective set. It was strategically there to show here are the things we can do that will demonstrate that people will use transit if you provide it. And that's seven years on the MTA board. We watched Mayor Dean make incremental investments, including on Gallatin, which was at the time the, the most popular route. And every time we added service, ridership went up. 
ridership went up above the previous service levels. We watched ridership growth grow faster than population growth, which is a great trend to have as a growing city. And then we just stopped all of that investment. So we can do the near-term stuff, and within a single term, you will see a much more useful traditional bus service. Now, while we are doing that, we should absolutely re-engage in the conversation about dedicated funding for transit, and that conversation is going to be the next great thing that the mayor does to build trust and confidence, to be community-based rather than top-down, to apply lessons learned from the previous transit referendum so we don't have a secret billion dollar tunnel under downtown so we don't have an overinvestment in light rail in a city that isn't dense enough to sustain it uh, that we take all of our stakeholder partners who want to do this and absolutely involve them their memberships we had all eight colleges and universities the major ones in nashville nominally supportive of the last transit referendum but we didn't do anything to leverage their faculty, staff, and students or alumni networks and get, you know, I want everyone involved in this conversation because it is our last major missing ingredient to be long-term successful as a growing city. Before he came into our global war world headquarters, <laughs> I said he'd be locked and loaded. Did I miss that? No, no, you did not. <laughs> it's almost as if you're running for office. Right? Uh, it's not just running for office, though. It is being prepared to succeed as soon yeah. as you take office. And I don't know what advice Jamie gives to anybody who comes to his doorstep saying, hey, I'm thinking of running. What advice do you have? But, you know, long ago, I knew you you for election night, you prepare two speeches, right? You have the one, you never know what the voters are going to say. You might have polling data that says one thing or in a, a smaller race, you might have no data at all. You're just out there hustling, doing what you think, putting your ideas on the table. And so on election night, you want to be ready to celebrate or lament. And so you have a victory speech and a concession speech available. Well, the same is actually as true for the day after the election. You have to know why you ran, why you won, and what you're going to do on day one. And when I got elected to Metro Council, I knew exactly what the next day was going to look like. I knew what the 30-day horizon was. I knew the process of swearing in. So I didn't have to spend my first 100 days, my first year, learning how to be a council member. I had people like Jamie that I already knew. I had multiple council members that I had talked to. I, I For 20 years, I've been watching mayors from the cheap seats down to the front row now. Meanwhile, having a private sector career all along that has brought in the right mix of skills. So it's not just about running for office. It is being ready on day one to do the job. And I think that's where we also have an advantage. Well, interestingly enough, the person who was came in to kill the transit plans also here back he's back to kill the racetrack deal hey i just heard this this weekend jamie <laughs> strangely enough but the decision to hold it at a democratic primary election was fatal to the cause and not having that ready set us back because what year was the referendum i don't even remember off the top it was of 2018. 2018 yeah. yeah like here we are five years hence and What's going on? Also getting mail in my mailbox from people I don't know. Karen. From Karen. <laughs> or citizen. 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 Yeah. citizen. Uh, or friend of citizen. Yeah. Uh, citizen. But, you know, you talked about transit and housing affordability being linked. Because I, I hate the term affordable housing. Because that's the most bastardized talking point that's come along since 2015. And where I've moved to is housing i don't care paint it yellow 
Slap, yeah, period. Slap, build build housing. Slap, period. Slap a turd emoji on it. I uh, I will be down at the planning commission for it. It has to happen because now the consensus is in the community I participate in. It's like, oh, everybody's for housing on the pike. Well, or on the pikes. Well, if we start putting that, well, up, I'm going to say not even everybody is there yet. <laughs> we we had I, in my own neighborhood. We had a more difficult conversation than i was anticipating about some affordable housing for seniors on the pike well everybody's for affordable housing over there yeah. they don't you know nimby is still strong our zoning code built nimby into the process and it's playing out now and i would submit to you and anybody else that that zoning code of 1998 has put us in the position we're in right now and there has to be a, a big shift in the mindset because i represent clients who want to get property rezoned well of course that includes going to a neighborhood meeting well the number one concern at a neighborhood meeting is two things what about the traffic where are you going to park them i don't care i don't know if you know this or not but in the uzo there's no longer a what uh parking minimum well that message is not out to the, to the various neighborhood associations so you're saying we got to walk chew gum at the same time i am saying that yeah but they're in order to do that in my humble estimation is we have to overhaul the zoning code it has to be torn up start over where are we going where are you at on that so this this was actually maybe the most frustrating thing about having a, a pandemic drop in our laps this term as i will tell you there was there was a real change in the capacity for what we could accomplish just by pushing us to, I mean, we didn't meet for a period of time. Then we were meeting virtually as a Metro council. And finally, you know, almost two years into the term, we finally got something back to normal. And so as a result, some of the energy that would have gone into this, I'll say this, one of the very few disappointments and regrets that I have is I had I had been working with and pushing planning on two aspects that are smaller versions of it, but it was supposed to be on route to a bigger thing. I wanted to have a 2.0 of the downtown code put to bed before I was done. We had seen far more capacity in urban development uh, than we could have even dreamed of back when the downtown code was first created in 2010. Now, we made advancements and here i'm hoping we get a final version of the bonus height program put to bed but i don't know if it'll happen before this term we also had the possibility of getting a music row code finalized we have a music row vision plan but this would have also given the stretch of midtown all the way down into the the single family kind of area near belmont a lot more uh, predictability it would have incented music-based businesses to be in like preserve music row intentionally and strategically as a key part of music city identity for the city we made progress on both of those things we did not fundamentally deliver the versions that i wanted the same is true of title 17. i really thought this second term with some good council members who had been a part of nashville next as resource teams i mean Myself, Colby Sledge, Jeff Syracuse, Angie Henderson. There were a lot of council members who see exactly what you've seen in the antiquated pieces of our zoning code. And I said to Doug Sloan before he left as planning director, Doug, if we don't invest in this process, your beautiful map 
of Nashville Next and what we see there with base zoning is just going to be pockmarked with specific plan districts, otherwise known as SPs. And all that says to me is that our base zoning isn't appropriate to the task. And that is still my belief. Now, you know as well as I do, where Mayor Dean was, he enabled Nashville Next to even be created in the first place by turning Rick Bernhardt loose on it. Fundamentally, I call it NIMBY Next. <laughs> well, that may be. Go back to before it. Uh, but I think coming up on the decade mark, we do need to revisit Nashville Next and its connection to the underlying components of Title 17. And as mayor, I'm happy to be involved in that as a citywide conversation. But you know from having been a district council member yourself, every district council member is going to want to be invested in that too. And I'm going to respect that as well. In the past, I would have told mayors, don't say a word. Don't involve yourself in the zoning process. You have plenty of other things on your plate to do. But I think the where we are now, it's so fractured because i would submit to you this council hates each other more than any other council i don't know again i go back to i think covid meant and the fact i mean so here's what happened last term a thing that helped us as a class was we all came in together uh, there was a lot of transition the council staff turned over quite a bit um but we went through a couple different in-person retreats. We did some things that I think allowed us to get to, a, you know, what I would amount, uh, uh, call a, a calibration as a council, as a class. And it worked out. Even when people disagreed, you could move on from those disagreements. This council, I think, that being on screens for six months set us back. The fact that once we were back off of screens, we haven't had a retreat as a group. I mean, this, this council has never come together since that very first like pre COVID moment to just say what Shulman actually helpfully said at the end of the last term, but then didn't seem to be able to anchor us around, which is what do you want to be remembered for as a Metro council? And I'll say if I'm giving advice as an outgoing council member, to incoming council and vice mayor have some communication. If you looked, <clears throat> you've got Pat Nolan doing the town crier thing at the beginning and end of every meeting. God bless him. God bless him. But that's, that's the most anyone will ever hear about the council office. If we pass a major piece of legislation that a large coalition of council members have worked on together, there is no communication coming out of the council office to help the st- city understand that, right? There is no storytelling. There is no, um, there's just no communications capacity in the council office right now. And I think that actually contributes to people's frustration because they don't, if you're not watching Metro Nashville Network, if you're not following along, there's barely any journal of record any longer about what's going on in Metro Council. It can be tough to follow. And the council office can make that easier for people. I mean, it, it would be great to even have. Pat's thing come out as whether it's a podcast or whatever, just something to make that communication better. Uh, but to your point, I actually, I thought Mayor Dean made the right choice in uh, encouraging planning to undertake something ambitious to at least take a stab at some of the zoning issues. And I, I am, I'm not just willing, I'm excited about the prospect of taking that decade mark for Nashville next and looking at it. Well, I think a decade ago, people could hold their nose and vote for something 
that now absolutely does not happen, and it's representative of the fact that we're hollowing out the middle. People are going to the edge, which kind of dovetails next into what I consider one of the most important relationships of a mayor, and that's with the state of Tennessee. There has to be a good relationship. My opinion, because I'm a pragmatist at the end of the day, you know, some pie is better than no pie. <laughs> and, you know, right now, even Governor Lee, I mentioned this in the last episode with Braden, even Governor Lee, a headline of Tennessee Journal from Eric Shelzig, Governor Lee says this is not productive. Well, that's, to me, that was huge to read. Like, hey, we got to turn the page. And what can you do apart from other candidates to help turn that page? So the apart from other candidates thing is maybe the most interesting part of that, because uh, if any other candidate came on the show to try to tell you that they've unraveled the mystery of the state local relationship, I'd either say they're bad at it or they're lying. Uh, This was the worst it's ever been. This session we just passed through uh, and we've got two state senators in this race. uh, You know, it seems to be making the pitch that they're going to be effective at this. I'm, looking at that saying hmm that's interesting because uh, you're up there what bill have you passed <laughs> well and not only that but uh, i mean we we just watched the state take over a chunk of our sports authority take over a chunk of our airport authority uh end our ability to put uh convention center surpluses into uh housing we watched their legislative response to covenant be to further curtail liabilities for gun manufacturers right i mean this this was an extraordinary session uh, in every measure. And so, I i mean, I guess I would tell you what I know to be true and what I hope to try, but I can't sit here and say I have unraveled it because I was trying very hard not to go rogue. I was trying very hard to give good insight, but I'll also say uh, with the state's interest in the governance of Nashville uh, and trying to slash our Metro Council in half uh, dramatically and quickly, the number of times my phone rang from state legislative offices this session, zero, right? And so we need that to be a two-way street. And that means that we will need involvement of the mayor's office personally in high-quality relationships with the governor, with the lieutenant governor, with the speaker. Uh, I would argue also with the comptroller. Uh, those are going to have to be conversations that are not just one-time conversations at the start of term, but uh, continue over time, I would say, in my personal opinion, the relationship between the mayor personally and some of the key committee chairs in both chambers is going to be important. Uh, my background is I have been on the Nashville MTA board for seven years working with the uh, startup of the Mayor's Caucus, which is a regional group of city and county mayors. Uh, I was there at the formation of that, went to several of those meetings. Our regional partners are still very interested in and invested in a better transit and transportation ecosystem in Middle Tennessee. Uh, coupling that with my experience just before getting on the Metro Council and the Cumberland Region Board of Tomorrow's, Cumberland Region Board of Tomorrow, sorry, Cumberland Region Tomorrow's Board of Directors, uh, the the regional relationships matter because when we have our city and county folks around the Davidson County delegation also speaking to the General Assembly, that's how we know we're not likely to get submerged if we try to go do something based on the Improve Act. I will say too, I have always been intentional 
about and proud of having bipartisan support for everything I've tried to do in politics. When I ran in 2015, we had good bipartisan support in that effort. When I sought re-election in 2019, the same thing was true. I've been especially proud that when we have been through this grinder of state and local partisan tension, that we have built a good bipartisan coalition. And I have had a surprising number of Republicans that you know, people on Capitol Hill and people in the city of Nashville would recognize, say to me, we are ready to help if and when you get elected. We want to repair this relationship. I think there are people at the city and state both that want, to your point, to see this work. And I am one of those people. I don't spend my time dunking on individual state legislators. I will get involved in policy conversations and try to defend Nashville's interests when it's true. But I spend my time going in to meet personally with Speaker Sexton, with Speaker McNally, and not with an ask, not trying to do something that the mayor is saying don't do. When the governor's office reached out to me to talk about the Republican National Convention, I picked up the phone and I gave them my advice. And I said, here's the worst case scenario you want to avoid. Well, despite all the advice I gave to them, the RNC, and you know, it wasn't like the mayor's office was looking to hear my advice on that. We got to the worst case outcome, and here we are. But I think we can do better, and I think people know what I tried to do to avoid the worst case scenario, and I think that's what we're going to do going forward. We're going to look at priorities of Nashville, priorities of the state, try to allow each side to understand what those are, look for the common points of interest, understand what the points of friction might be before they happen, and try our level best to uh, forestall those as much as we can. I have two daughters in metro schools. I, as do I. I. I believe in public school in, the, in, in just as, a, as an individual, but it, it's a huge budget item. It's a huge chunk of the budget. Uh, but you, for those that don't know, have very little control over what happens to that money. How, how can a mayor actually help improve our schools? How can a mayor actually, again, it goes to the relationship with the state. It goes, what, what is it that you can actually do when you get into office to to help parents like me who are worried about, frankly, the five, six, 10, 12 years that my children, my, ch- my children are very young, um, kindergarten and first grade. What is it you can do for my, my two daughters? So the best thing is that I'm a public school parent myself. And so having skin in the game, uh, both of our daughters, so we've got one in elementary, one in middle, uh, it is incredibly important for a mayor to invite people in to experience the excellence that exists in our public school system. I One of my favorite things that happened back in the Dean administration was something they called the First Choice Festival. Every year, they, for a few years running, and they did it once at the convention center, I think a couple times out at the fairgrounds, and it was all schools in Metro, every public school, including the charters, which are public schools, uh, would come out and... It was a moment where I think each school actually realized they had to put their best foot forward. And it's a great thing to help a school understand that they should do more than expect students to walk through their door on the first day of school every year, right? That you should have higher expectations than just being a zone-based school because you should want people to want to come to your school. That's a big deal about expectation setting. And when you have that festival... And you could see which schools were trying to attract parents. It's so helpful to do that. So I walked out of the first time. Our daughter was three years old, our older daughter. I had a list of 20 schools I would have been proud and happy to send her to. That's great news. Then when I went back the next year, I shortened it to six. And I had, I was talking to school leaders. I was talking to teachers. And 
if you have a great community school that you want to send your family to in your neighborhood, that's the ideal scenario. But in some circumstances, that is just not the case. And I'm not going to encourage families that have an option to do something else to send their student to a school that they have concerns about from an academic performance standpoint. And that's where the mayor has the most impact. When we got into Metro schools, I didn't realize on the front end that I had needed to know a secret handshake to get into aftercare. And so for three years, we were having that fight and I had to basically walk away from a job. And I said, I'm going to give up a professional opportunity to keep an opportunity open for our daughter being in public school. It would have been much easier for us, frankly, as a family at that time, to absorb the cost of private education and know that we had the confidence every day that our daughter could have something to do after school. Uh, I had to leave the office two to three days a week at 3 p.m. to pick her up from school because we had no aftercare. So we fought and we got a second on-site aftercare program at the school. And this was a big deal because now for years, other families coming behind us have had more aftercare capacity. As a mayor, I want to make it easier for working families to be able to choose Metro schools. I have talked to so many families, both before and after COVID, that could not choose Metro schools because they couldn't put themselves in the position that our family chose to do, which is reduce your income uh, in order to stay in public schools. That's a ridiculous decision to force parents to have to make, and we can start to expand aftercare capacity, particularly at the elementary school level, when students can't be left home alone, students can't you know, walk as easily, safely by themselves. And so starting to solve that is a big deal. We have the earliest high school start times in the entire nation right now. It's 7 a.m. for our traditional high schools. That is bad for mental health. That is bad for student performance. And if you really ask why we do that, it's because we're unwilling to solve a logistics problem. To me, that's where the mayor steps in and says, let's work backwards from what you're telling me the underlying issue is, and we can solve that kind of thing. Mayors have, for decades, worked on important things. Mayor Dean did a ton to recruit teachers into Nashville. That's an important project. Mayor Barry started an important early childhood literacy program to try to improve high-quality pre-K seats. That's also important. It's still continuing. We have great early learning centers. We should expand that model. Uh, United Way took what came out of that initiative as the blueprint for early childhood success. They've now reinvented it in Raising Readers Nashville, which just launched this year. If the mayor supports that program wholeheartedly and looks at all those benchmarks and makes sure we hit every single one of them, then this whole conversation about third grade retention in Nashville suddenly is less pressurized because we're reading effectively by first grade. Uh, you know, there the mayor Cooper did a couple of important things. He got teacher pay to the point where we have the best paid teachers in the state of Tennessee. That's a high watermark, but we shouldn't set that and then go back to lower tide. We should look to make sure that's always the case. He also ensured that teachers get paid family leave. This was a huge deal for flexibility from our teacher uh, population that many of whom are parents themselves. And so having paid family leave for them turned out to be a big deal. Mayors can absolutely have an impact on not just the accountability within our public school system, but the things that Metro can and should be doing to support our Metro school system, which will always be the largest single line item of the Metro budget. And so we want that to succeed and we gotta be accountable for that. Parks, <laughs> parks. <laughs> Parks. 
Plan to play, Jamie. Is there a question in there? <laughs> Parent of two teenagers. And strangely enough, we're a tourism mecca. And my two kids play a brand of baseball that requires travel. And we go to Alabama. We go to Georgia. We go to Missouri. We go to North Carolina. Because in Nashville, there's no place to play those games. There's no assembly of fields with the exception of West Nashville Sports League. And maybe this isn't a question, Braden, but it's a plea, <laughs> plea, and not for my kids because by the time something happens, my kids will be washed out of it or onto something bigger. Please consider investing in parks that brings young people there more because I consider our parks department, particularly our community centers, Shelby Community Center, East Park Community Center, uh, over in 12 South, led by Mr. Randy Crawley, Miss Gregory out in North Nashville. Invest in them more and yeah. more. This, this is one of those things that doesn't necessarily make headlines, Jamie, but it's one of the things that's actually pained me the most as a secondary priority, right? If we, if we go, you know, again, the bedrock issues of safety in schools, and then you build on that the quality of life elements parks is a huge missing ingredient for years again i feel like my life is kind of divided between before covid and after covid uh but before covid one of our daughter's favorite places in the city to go was cumberland park well for the past two years the very popular spray ground over there has been closed do you know why it's been closed i do not the way it was designed put the pump station which is a heavy piece of equipment on top of the pipes to fit in there. It has slowly been crushing the pipes that deliver water to the spray ground. So there is an expensive capital redesign of that equipment. For years, uh, the Greenway through Ascend Amphitheater was closed. Do you know why it was closed? No. There was a skateboarder who got electrocuted because he touched the railing on the Greenway through which they had decided to run live electrical to support the Ascend oh. Amphitheater. And it closed. Uh, there was a dock that is owned by Metro Parks. It has been closed for years. Do you know why it has been closed? No. A barge hit the dock, damaged the dock, yeah. made it unusable as a dock, but instead of repairing it and then waiting for the insurance settlement and you know putting that into the budget process, we decided to just leave this broken piece of equipment hanging there right off of the very popular entertainment district inaccessible to anybody that was trying to use the river as a transportation network or recreational facility for years, most of my two terms. And all of these things are indicative of the fact that we are not getting our priorities right as a city. Our urban parks, the thing that allowed Church Street Park to become something other than a failed public space was a partnership because we still have not as a you know as a city with our parks department within it we have not recognized that there is a difference between our downtown parks and green space and a place like Bell's Bend or Beeman or even the Warner Parks these aren't just expanses if you go to any other major city and you go to an urban park what you're going to see is programs almost all year round things that keep the park space activated and when we started doing that in Church Street Park with a private partnership the downtown partnership and the historic capital corridor foundation involved in that suddenly the park is available to everyone including 
people that are at the library and are taking advantage of both the library facility but also social services. So it serves everybody from unhoused Nashvillians to kids and people doing yoga or experiencing jazz. There are absolutely things we can be doing more successfully. I still don't completely understand Morgan Park, the our neighborhood park, used to have baseball fields. And then they went away. And there are still lights. But it's just a patch of grass now. Now, there are adult kickball leagues that are active there. There are youth football leagues that are active there. It's still a park. But I am excited about the opportunity to actually pick plan to play up off of the table, flip through its pages, and say, we're going to invest in that. Because our parks, there was a time when our parks were one of the just greatest quiet success stories of the city of Nashville. And I remember the excitement I felt when Cumberland Park opened. And I know how hard Mike Jamison fought to get investment on the east bank of the Cumberland River as we were thinking about riverfront redevelopment. But within six months, you could start to see signs that we weren't serious. You tell me the last time you were able to buy concessions at that concession stand. The slide was broken by skateboarders within six months. They literally slapped in the playground area on some planters they put in there, which are now no longer planted. You can still go down there and see in the play area things that say, like stickers that came off a large printer that say, do not climb. If you go to Centennial Sportsplex, where our daughters have been learning to swim, one of the doors into the Tracy Calkin swimming pool, whose mother taught with my mom, an Olympic swimmer, that facility has had caution tape and padlocks on some of the doors for years. I mean, these are just little things that cause confidence in our ability to govern ourselves to decline. And I want to make sure we're getting those things right, specifically in our parks department. So, yes, I hear you, sir. East National High School baseball team practices at Cleveland Park. It's the worst field in Davidson County, and it has no lights. Uh, recently, the Overton baseball team, their lights were locked by NES for failure to pay the light bill. Well, turns out the bill was sent to someone in the parks department to pay the bill. So it sat on someone's desk. They called me, hey, Jamie, can you get our, can you get our lock off the lights? So nobody at NES, before they put the chain on the lock, went to go knock on the door to say, hey, guys, you hadn't paid your bill. We're about to lock it. You want to pay us? I said, well, how much was the bill? It was $500. So our high school baseball team at Overton High School, they didn't get to have practice that night, which is a very limited window to do it. All that to say, the next thing to pay attention to, because it's real, is pickleball. There is high, <laughs> high demand. I love that we start with parks and oh, like this we, epic testimony and we wind up at pickleball. Listen, happy, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> hey, go go to go to Centennial Sportsplex Saturday, about ten o'clock. Take your canvases there, take some clipboards, take some crap. <laughs> hey, you will find 150 to 200 people and it is a mafia i type I, I hate that he's i hate that he's right about this <laughs> I, I 
He even got me doing it. It's like it's quite fun. There's so it, it's so bad that over at uh in front of Richland Library, there's a couple tennis courts. Yeah, I wasn't a part of it, but a bunch of pickleballers were playing on the tennis court. Now we're not going to get we're not asking for pickleball centric courts, but you know sharing. Can you pick it. baseball or pickleball? Which one do you want? I'm both. <laughs> <laughs> I don't play baseball anymore. That's true. But my kids do. I, 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 I mean. It, I'm going to lose some voters over this, but I feel like pickleball is like the froyo of tennis, you know? Wow. Oh, it's. Wow. You, that, those are, you may not walk out of here. <laughs> hey, hey it, it, it is, cult, it is cult like. He's, he's not wrong about this, Freddie. No, I know. No. I know. I, I saw somebody, I, the first time I experienced it was actually at a birthday party at somebody's house and they had put, it was one of our daughters got invited to a birthday party at some grandparents and they had put in a multi-generational pickleball court. Like three generations of, of their family were now enjoying pickleball. A lot of seniors, of which I'm soon to be one, <laughs> are playing this sport for the purposes of exercise. But over at Richland, some tennis players came on and they called the police on the pickleballers. Oh, my God. So that this is a tennis court. Not a pickleball court. But I'm, that's, I'm saying that's, it's a friction. So here's what I will say in all seriousness, though. When we see things, I mean, look, there was a time when Nashvillians didn't know what a greenway was. Well, now it's one of the most popular parts of our park system. There was a time when we just, nobody, it had never occurred to anybody to have a dog park. Well, now dog parks are one of the most important parts of our parks ecosystem. As, as other things come up, like pickleball, it's supposed to be like in a city that is is growing and thriving. You're supposed to be able to understand what people want in their recreational lives and have your park system be a, a partner in offering that. So it's a know. senior constituency. <laughs> I'm just pointing it out. But I got one more point. Well, so. well I, I was going to transition to safety and that's you know, where, gun that's violence. That's where I'm, I'm going to do that. You know, um, recently, he's a one issue voter, Freddie. It's pickleball. Right, that's I'm, it. I got to find where Jamie needs his pickleball court. Recently. 12-year-old killed at Napier yeah, by another teenager. Yes. And there's a there's a conversation out there. It was happening last budget, uh, you know, quote-unquote, defund the police. Very poor terminology, in my opinion. That, like, what we're doing ain't working. You know, recently at Casey Holmes, a uh, 50-year-old lady catches a stray. You know, yeah, dead. I heard about that. And like, hey, when I hear a twelve-year-old getting killed by another teenager, like we, that stopped me in my tracks. Like, what are we doing, mayors? What what conversation? Like, let's get real. We can't say, oh, we're gonna, we're going to invest more in police. No, we've got to change. And I don't know what the answer is. I will tell you the the Napier thing um, was particularly disconcerting me because some of what we have been doing actually has been working and this is this is for the bigger safety conversation i think if i look at napier and pseudicum as a whole and you look at it in many ways as a contrast to what has happened in casey uh, a couple of things are true and it started last term because i i was welcomed into office by some tragic in my face examples of how much gun violence was impacting young people, particularly in Napier, uh, well before Covenant, right? I mean, this was a nearly weekly series of tragedies. If I, if I go back to the first few years of emails, when we get the MNPD bulletins, there was inevitably another homicide in Napier. And 
we knew it was a problem. And so the first approach was a more traditional one. We worked out an MOU between MDHA and MNPD, so our housing authority and police department. And it was useful for one specific reason. It, whereas you used to have a heavy patrol car presence in Napier when I was first elected, 2015, this got officers out of the car and into the community. In fact, one of the best afternoons I spent was we did a big, when Mayor Barry did her big spring clean initiative, I said, I want trucks out in Napier because we're going to fill them with all the illegal dump sites. And we did. We filled more than two trash trucks completely with stuff that was out there. But that day, I was out walking around with Officer Chisholm at Hermitage Precinct. And he was out there just because he had gotten very invested in the community and some of the relationships on the ground. So that part really mattered. This term, I'm going to give Mayor Cooper a lot of credit for what I think is still one of the most successful things to come out of his administration that I hope to continue and expand. And that is the Community Safety Partnership Program, which has invested in multiple on-the-ground organizations, specifically in Napier, and they've gone further you may have heard of, I don't know if it's come over to Casey yet, but what Ron Johnson's been working on is this model of the village. Well, there is public money going into the organizations that make up the village, and they are tracking a lot of the impact of their work. And it went beyond just what we had heard about from Cure Violence and the process of violence interruption uh, a few years ago into a specific program that's been working elsewhere that they have just gotten off the ground and we just got a presentation on it in the last of the gun safety meetings that uh, Councilmember Syracuse is chair of our uh, public health and safety committee got together. Uh, they are now underway with one of the programs I had been looking at since Covenant, which is group violence intervention. And it's the process of, I mean, it, it's doing what we could have done for a long time. And, makes a lot of sense when you just sit down to think about it. We know where most of our violence comes from. We know, in fact, in many cases, who the people are that are most likely to pick up a gun and perpetrate gun violence. And if you can disrupt the social networks around these people and you do it with a mix of people in the community, your providers like the people that are in the village, and then if necessary, law enforcement you can actually simultaneously lower the incidence of gun violence and violent crime. And it, you know, we did have another tragic incident just here in Napier recently, but more often than not, over the past eight years, with that first work we did with that MOU, the number of times I would get an email about a homicide in Napier fell off. Then after we started the village model, and we also did some work on the ground to get traffic calming on the ground so you can't speed up and down Charles E. Davis Boulevard. Uh, we we at one fell swoop because NES does not know when their own lights are out. Uh, they have to be reported by the community. Any pole with a yellow strip, if that goes out and nobody in the community knows how to report that and another one goes out, another one, you get several dozen lights are out. So we went wholesale through the community, fixed dozens of street lights. So now we had better lit streets, harder streets to drive through, get in, do something illegal, pull a trigger. And over the past eight years, we have systematically driven down the violent crime rate in Napier. It's, you know, I don't know as much because I just haven't represented about what's not working in Casey, but these programs are effective over time. And I think we did have that, uh, you know, that very recent tragic episode, but I used to have that every month. 
And now I'm relieved that this felt like a startling, you know, it's tragic and it's awful. uh, But I feel like we have seen signs of progress and I want those signs of progress to continue. And I know Braden wants to jump in, but this is what centered me. And I think Braden came with me. We went to a middle school in East Nashville mentoring opportunity that a principal put on that is absolutely fantastic. I'll give you his number later to engage him because you're going to want to know him. <laughs> when I was interviewing the student as a part of this process, I said, hey, you know, this is kind of last near the end of school. I said, what are you going to do this summer? Oh, I'm going to play. Well, where are you going to play, inside or outside? Oh, inside. I said, how come? I don't get to go outside. I said, how come you don't get to go outside? My mother would not let me go outside because it's too violent mm. where I live. And I said, where do you live? She said, I live in the projects. I said, Casey. She said, yes. I tell that story to say, I want that to center you yep. like it centered me. Whoa. That's that, what we heard in Napier, this, Jamie, eight Hey, years this ago. stuff, what we're doing, it ain't working. I, I want her to be able to go outside yep. when she wants to because her parent feels it's safe to do so. So some right. of the stuff I'm talking about is brand new literally just started in the past few months and it has to continue. We cannot, uh, the, the, and you've seen it before when administrations change, a lot of times the instinct is to just wholesale reset everything. That is not what I hope to do as mayor. There are some things that mayor Cooper has in progress right now that are absolutely necessary to continue. And the brand new work that is coming out of his, his office of community safety is going to be uh, impactful. Yeah, it, treating causes, not symptoms, having officers who are part of the community, uh, mental health approaches to reacting to incidents. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, affordable housing and employment opportunities and transportation, it all it all works together. Um, and good luck messaging all of that to, you know, 4,000 different opinions and perspectives on life. So um, with all of that, uh, I'll just sort of leave you with this. We do appreciate your time, Freddie, for being so generous here. But I guess my my final question here uh, to wrap up would just be, why do you want the job? So fundamentally, uh, I think growing up here, uh, thinking about leaving here for college and then wondering if I was coming back, and seeing what can happen in a city to make it a place you want to be. I mean, Mayor Bredesen back in the day did some important things. He created a crown jewel of our library system. We watched the first art museum come online, which did not exist when I was a kid. Uh, the Nashville Zoo did not exist when I was a kid. The Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum when I was a kid was not what it is today, which is an amazing thing to experience. We didn't have a National Museum of African American Music. And then I got the opportunity to start to experience other cities and see what made them great. And having my parents be in the house they grew up in, uh, having been able to buy a home in a neighborhood that made a lot of sense to us 16 years ago, uh, and raising two daughters and hoping that if they want to stay here, that they have some of the same opportunities that my parents had, that we had as a family, uh, having uh, a lot of opportunity both in their educational uh, space and extracurriculars, uh, having professional opportunity, having a pathway to home ownership. The, the thing is, there is so much to love about Nashville now 
that is better than the Nashville I grew up in. That's been great to see and more recently to be a part of. And having the opportunity to be a part of that conversation over the past eight years in council has been just, you know, the, an unbelievable honor and privilege. Now we get to think about the successes that we've had in a small part of the city that I live in and take those citywide and take the things that we love about other cities that anybody in Nashville who's been to a larger city and comes back with something they thought that was great about that, whether it's Denver, Chicago, I mean, any other city also has some of its problems, but a lot of times you look at what you loved and why you went there. And I want Nashville to have a lot of that. Fundamentally, we know we can do better. We know we can have useful, meaningful transit. We know we can have housing that's attainable for more people. Uh, We know we can take care of ourselves more effectively. We know that the creative people who are here have chosen to be here and we should celebrate that. And, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing to me also to be in my hometown where my dad is a songwriter and we've got Music City flowing in our bloods. And I want always to be known as music city where the music is the piece that is bringing people here who are coming to visit and that when they get here they discover that people love to live here freddie thank you for your time we appreciate it yeah thank you guys thank you appreciate it all right thank you guys all for listening to pod bless nashville we really really appreciate it Please rate, review, and subscribe. Tell somebody about it. We'll have Matt Wilcher's interview coming up soon on the show, so stay tuned. Of course, you can get to me at Braden Gall and at J.R. Holland, although don't tell anybody I told you to follow him. Uh, We really do appreciate it. You can get to Pod Bless Nashville on the socials as well, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Otherwise, thank you all for listening. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next time.